Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we conclude this summer series on parables of the kingdom, we conclude with a text that really isn't a parable. I sort of went with the head fake because it's often called the parable of the sheep and the goats. But then as I began to get into it, I realized that it wasn't exactly a parable at all. It has a simile in it, the simile of the sheep and the goats, but that's pretty much it. What it is, moreover, is rather a, a, a vision or a, a scene, and it's a scene of judgment. You could think about the book of Revelation where we have scenes of judgment. It's something like that without all of the, the beasts and the strange characters. It just has animals, uh, sheep, and goats. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a vision or a, a scene of the judgment in the future. However, it turns out that it is a, a, good, a good summary of what we found in the parables because it does have some of the aspects that we found in the parables, and it, it brings them all to a conclusion. Three of the aspects that show up very strongly here that we've seen in many of the parables are these. God's sovereign determination, God's sovereign determination. We keep seeing this over and over in the parables, that God determines. He's the one who rules. He's the one who decrees. And at the same time in the parables, they call for a response from us. So our response, our activity, which is a necessary response. And then the final thing is the division. There is a division in the parables. The, the parables draw a line in the sand, and here we find that, law, that line drawn in the sand in, a, in an ultimate and final way. Interestingly, this appears only in Matthew, and these are the last public words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. This is his parting, parting speech 
to the world before he, he, he goes to his death and he focuses more on his disciples. So what do we have here? What's in this scene? Well, the first thing we have is the Son of Man on the throne of judgment in the first three verses, 31 to 33. And this, this is a, a prominent aspect, an important aspect of this, of this, I was about to say parable, of this scene, of this vision, that we might easily pass over. We might easily pass over this, the question of who is on the throne and why is he there? Who is on the throne and why is he there? Well, this is, uh, this is, as you can detect from our earlier reading, this is picking up on the judgment scene in Daniel. And if we go back to Daniel chapter 7 and we ask who is on the throne, the answer is the Ancient of Days is on the throne. But then there is one like a Son of Man. And what is the Son of Man doing? The Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days. And he is approaching the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. So we would expect, when we come to the New Testament picking up that, who should be on the throne? Well, the Ancient of Days would be on the throne. And where is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is approaching the throne. But what do we find in this parable? We find the Son of Man on the throne. And we ought to ask, how did he get there? And what is he doing there? You see, what we have in the Daniel vision looks like a vision of the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus' career his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then the continuation of his resurrection is the ascension all the way to where? All the way to the right hand of God. And where is God? Where is the Ancient of Days? He's on the throne, so where is the one who is at his right hand? He also is on the throne. And actually, we have this stated in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3.21, it says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so what do we have here? We have the, the culmination of the ascension of Jesus. He goes to the throne and he sits on the throne with the ancient of days, using other language, the Father and the Son jointly reigning together once Jesus has, has completed his work of redemption. And, and this is not a surprise because if you look in John chapter 5, 22, Jesus predicted that the Father would give all judgment to the Son. And this is an idea that comes out in the New Testament that, that the one who will judge on the last day is the Son, is the Son of Man. And here we see that he's doing just that in this, this vision. And how does he do it? What well, says he separates, he gathers all the nations, and then he separates them into two groups. And here is the only parabolic or, or metaphorical aspect of this, this, this scene where he refers to a shepherd and he says he will separate the peoples as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, the sheep image is very common in scripture, isn't it? You can think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so what am I? A sheep. And the idea of, of sheep is all through the scriptures as the people of God. What about the goats? Goats were valuable as well. So the goats are not a negative image here in themselves. It didn't say the sheep and the wolves, for example. It didn't say the sheep and the dragons or the sheep and the serpents or something like that. 
No, it, it picked two animals that were very similar in appearance, at least from a distance. And, and that seems to be the idea. The shepherd knows the difference between animals that look similar. And they might all be mixed together. Now, we've seen that in the parables, haven't we? Where they're, they're mixed together and there is a separation at the end. And that's what we see here. They, they look alike, but then in the end, we find out that they are very, very different, these two groups. And what we have here is that he puts some on his right, the sheep, and some on his left. Now, with some apologies to left-handers, throughout, throughout history, uh, you, you know better than anyone, don't you, that the world is made for right-handers. And uh, throughout history, right has been good and left has been bad. And so to be on the king's right hand is a good thing. To be on the left is not a good thing. And so this, this prepares us that there are going to be two outcomes here. It sets it up that way so that we're expecting two different outcomes, one positive and one negative. Now, the, the ones on the right, he says to them, and now he's called the king. First he's called the son of man, now he's called the king. And he speaks to the ones on the right, and he says... Come, blessed, prepared. Remember those words. Come, blessed, prepared. So in verse 34, he says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this, uh, this invitation is, is to come toward him. And then this word blessed, there are a couple of words in, in the New Testament that we translate blessed, like blessed are the poor, that's one of them. Uh, this is the other, this is not the same one. This is the one that is, is to speak well of. So he says, uh, you all are spoken well of, I speak well of you, I favor you, you are blessed by my Father. And what do they, what do they receive? It says, inherit the kingdom. Now, when you inherit something, you not only participate in it, but you what? You own it. You possess it. And so this is an amazing, amazing call to say, come, inherit, possess the kingdom prepared for you by my Father. And for how long has it been prepared? It's been prepared since the foundation of the world. Did you notice that? Verse 34. Blessed by my Father, inherit, possess, own the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So here we have one of those strains that we saw in the parables. That's what? This has been decided. This has been prepared since the beginning. The, the, those on the right have been designated since the beginning. So here we have that very strong sovereignty of God, plan of God, that he has determined who will be those who inherit the kingdom, and it's been done since the foundation of the world. But at the same time, at the same time, not only is the kingdom a gift of God, a favor of God, a blessing of God, designated for those with whom God is well pleased and wants to give it, but there's another explanation as well, and that has to do with the behavior, the acts of those who are on his right side. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting side-by-side -side here, isn't it? It's been prepared for you be since before the world began, from the foundation of the world, because, and then he gives an explanation. 
because, verse, verse 35, for I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And here he mentions six different acts of kindness for the helpless. And he takes them very, very personally. He, he, he commends them. He says, you did this all for me. And that immediately caused puzzlement on the part of those on the right. They say, when did we do that? Lord, we don't remember ever, ever encountering you in these desperate, needy situations. When did we ever do this for you? And they scratched their heads, and they couldn't remember any time when they had encountered, encountered the Lord in such dire straits. And this, this puzzlement indicates something important here. It's this. They weren't doing these things to gain anything. They weren't doing these things in a calculating way. They were doing these things because that's who they were. They, they weren't doing things to try to tally up some score with the Lord. They didn't react saying, oh, so you noticed that. I'm glad you took that into account. They said, when? We, we don't recall any of these things that we've done for you. And then we find the answer. And the answer is that Jesus took personally, took personally all the acts they did for those who are called the least of these my brothers. The least of these my brothers. Now, who are the least of these my brothers? By calling them my brothers, Jesus is referring to believers in him, uh, Christians. And so it's, it's referring in, in, in first instance to those who are of the faith. And when we think about the least of these, my brothers, we think of needy Christians. And we're not wrong in doing that. However, we maybe can get more specific here. Because if you look back in Matthew, still in Matthew, chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, we read this. Jesus said, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And this is after he has sent out the, uh, the commissioned his disciples to go out and preach. So he says, whoever receives you, my sent ones, we might call them missionaries, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Then he says, the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So here we find Jesus identifying with the least of these, and here he describes some of the least of these as those who are going out in his name, those who are preaching the gospel in his name, and in addition to that, the little ones, the, the, the children. And when you think about this in the, history of, in the history of the church, who are the most vulnerable, historically speaking? Well, children are very vulnerable, aren't they? They, they need protection, and, and they literally need to be fed, they need to be clothed, uh, they need to be tended to when they're sick, and so on. But also, workers of the gospel. They often end up in prison. They often end up sick. They often end up 
in, in, uh, naked even. They often end up in, in dire situations, and because of that, they need attended to. Think about Paul. Now, he, he describes his, his career, doesn't he? He describes some of his sufferings, and what does he say? He said, I, I, I spent night and day without food. I fasted. I was on the open sea. I was in prison. I, I don't know how many times, and he talks about all his sufferings. And so when we think about the, the least of these, we can, think about, we can think about children, and we can think about those who have gone out for the name of Christ and have suffered, therefore. We may not want to restrict it to those, but in, in we have good indication in Matthew that, that they may well be in mind. Now, those are the ones on his right. What about the ones on his left? Do you remember? To the ones on his right, he said what? He said, come, blessed, prepared. And now, in verse 41, we hear the opposite of that. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Go from me, the translation here, depart from me. So go from me, you, instead of blessed, what does it say? Cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So here's prepared again. Instead of come, what do we have? Go. Instead of blessed, what do we have? Cursed. Instead of prepared for you from the foundation of the world, we have prepared for the devil and his angels angels. So like those on the right, we have a place prepared for those on the left. But notice something. It wasn't originally prepared for them, was it? It wasn't prepared for them. The ones on the right, the kingdom was prepared for them originally, right? It was prepared for them since the foundation of the world. It it, it was theirs since the foundation of the world. But what about those on the left? They're going to a place that wasn't originally prepared for them. They're going to a place, they're going to a place that wasn't theirs, that should not have been theirs. It's a, a misplacement. It is a, an adaptation for a, a situation that's just wrong. That they, they shouldn't be going there. It's not for them. For whom is this terrible place? It's been prepared for the devil and his angels. But they're going there. And so we see here that there's an adaptation here for a situation that ought not to exist. You know how that is. If extra people show up, you need to make a place for them, but it doesn't exactly fit. Too many guests show up, and they may have to sit on something that's not exactly a chair, or they may have to sleep in a room that's not exactly a bedroom, or sleep on the couch, which isn't exactly for that. You make do because it's an anomalous situation, and that's this tragic situation here. He says, this was prepared for the devil and his angels, but you have to go there. Why? Well... That wasn't the original plan. The original plan for humanity is the kingdom of God. Go back to Genesis. That's the kingdom of God inaugurated, and and humans are put in charge. They they possessed the kingdom originally in the Garden of Eden, and they were to reign and rule with God over his good creation. That's the original plan. And what what is the situation that came in and broke that? It was sin. And, And because of that, there's this adaptation of this terrible place for those for whom it wasn't originally prepared. And then he explains 
how he knows it's for them. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then, then there's the surprise on the part of, of those on the left. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not serve you, did not minister to you? You see, they were oblivious as well. Those on the right were oblivious. Those on the left were oblivious. Those on the right were oblivious that they had done anything extraordinary. And those on the left were oblivious that they had neglected anything. Those on the right didn't know that they'd served Christ with all those acts of kindness to the needy, his, his needy brothers and sisters. And those on the left were clueless, as we'd say, that they had ever neglected Christ in any way and ever failed to minister to him by failing to minister to the least of his brothers. And once again, we have the identification of Jesus. What's the explanation? He says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the the least of these, you did not do it to me. So he identifies with his brothers, especially with the least If you minister to the least of his brothers, you minister to him. If you fail to minister to the least of his brothers, you fail to minister to him. Then there's the last line, verse 46, and this is the final judgment. And these, that is those on the left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so now we have some comparisons here. The kingdom includes eternal life. That's what we learned here. Because he said, inherit the kingdom, and then he said, go into eternal life. So kingdom, eternal life, those two things go together, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the original kingdom back in Genesis, what was it about? It was about life, and death was the anomaly. It was the situation that should not have been. And so now we're back to the, the original purpose, the original plan, come into the kingdom, come into eternal life. And then the terrible option there is eternal punishment. That's what the eternal fire is about. This is the only place in all of Scripture that it uses this expression, eternal punishment, and it describes what this this eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels and into which others go, awkwardly go, tragically go. That's the eternal fire. It's eternal punishment. Now, this separation here, this final separation, is a fitting conclusion to our series on the parables even though this isn't exactly a parable because if if you look back over the parables you find that the parables did this they 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 drew a line in the sand almost every parable it it puts some people on one side and other people on the other side if you think about this you remember the soils you have the three bad soils and you have the one good soil the only one that produces good fruit you remember the wheat and the, the weeds they, they grow up together, and then at the end, at the harvest, there's a, what is the, there's a separation between the two. Do you remember the, the good fish and the bad fish? They're drawn up in the same net, and then, and then they're divided. Some are separated from the others. Do you remember the, the unfaithful servants and the faithful servants? We saw those in more than one parable, uh, where the unfaithful servants uh, are, are given over to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the faithful servants are, are given more responsibility in the kingdom. Do you remember the wise and the foolish virgins? They're all together at the beginning, but then the wise get to go into the, into the banquet and the, the, the foolish are left outside knocking 
and told, I don't know you. Do you remember the obedient and the disobedient sons? One says, no, sir, and then he goes, and the other says, yes, I will, and he doesn't go. Do you remember the, the fruitful and the unfruitful farmers, those who would not give the fruit and the harvest, and those who would, would give the fruit when the, when the harvest time came? And then last week, do you remember the, the included guests and the excluded guests in last week's sermon about the banquet where those who were invited said no and they didn't get to enter in? And those who came in later uh, from the highways and the byways, they, they were brought in to the banquet feast. And this is the final division here in this, in this, uh, this description, this scene. And it's interesting that we have a new word introduced here in verse 46. It says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The righteous into eternal life. Now, this, this word righteous has two emphases in the Bible. And it looks like they come together here in this, this final judgment scene. Who are the righteous? Well, there are two meanings of this in the scripture. The righteous are those who have standing before God. And here you can think uh, in legal terms. You can think of those who are accepted by God, those who are gods, who are received by gods, who are innocent before God because he has declared them to be so. He has, in theological and biblical terms, he has justified them. He has declared them to be righteous in his sight. And this is a gift. We find this throughout Scripture, that, that if we have sinned even once, we who were born in sin... If we have sinned even once that we cannot make ourselves to have a right standing before God, it must be given by God. And, and that's what we find explained very clearly, and especially in the, the letters of Paul, that, that a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law, that, that God delights to justify the ungodly because Jesus died for us. And he takes away our sins and he gives to us the righteousness of Christ, so that we are clothed in Christ, another image. So before Christ, before God, we are perfectly righteous in Christ. That is our standing. That is the gift. That is the position. But that's not the only meaning of righteousness in the scripture. There is a related meaning, and that is how we live our lives. That, that the righteous are those who live righteously. The righteous are those who pay attention to God's commands. The righteous are those who love God and love neighbor. Who, who avoid sin and, and align their lives with, with God's desires. And what we have in this scene is these two, two ideas come together, don't they? They come together because we have the gift emphasis here. This is the kingdom that was prepared before you did anything. You didn't even exist, but it was prepared for you. This is the gift of God, the well-spoken of, the blessed of my Father. It's a gift and then he says, for this is how you lived. It's the gift of righteousness, and it's the activity of righteousness come together in this final judgment scene. But this has to be the case in the final judgment, doesn't it? If I tell you, I have faith in Jesus Christ, you may believe me or you may not believe me. But how will you test that claim? You will look at my life. And that's how it works in the judgment as well. The judgment is always presented as a judgment on the lives of those who are being judged. Why? 
because the only way to demonstrate that we have faith is by the way we live our lives. James gave that challenge, didn't he? He says, he says you have faith, I have works. He says, Let me, let's try something here. You show me your faith without works. Go ahead. Knock yourselves out. Try to show me your faith without your lifestyle backing it up. And the answer is, it's impossible. You can't do that. And that's how these two things come together. I believe in Jesus Christ, and he is my only righteousness before God. I stand in his righteousness, perfect before him. And that should show itself in my life. And if it doesn't, there's a problem with my faith. If my faith doesn't show itself in genuine righteousness. There's the gift of rightness before God, received by faith alone. There is the right living before God and others which God produces in believers. To say it another way, the ones on the right showed kindness because they belonged to God. They showed kindness. That's why they were surprised. They weren't tallying up any score. They were just doing what they do because they were God's, known by him, called by him, saved by him, sent out by him. They were just acting in accordance with their nature. Sheep act like sheep. That's all they were doing. In other words, those who have been loved by God show God's love to others. Those who have been forgiven by God forgive others. Those who have received God's word take God's word to others. Those who have received God's kindness show God's kindness to others. Those who have been helped by God in their helpless state, help others in their helpless state. That's how it works. In other words, salvation is by grace through faith alone, and that faith that saves is never alone, but it's always accompanied by acts of love. This is what should and oftentimes does distinguish Christians. Now, we have to admit that we've fallen short personally and historically, many, many times, many, many times. We, we have gone astray individually. We've gone astray as churches. But at the same time, if you look over these last 2,000 years of history, you will find a very impressive record of Christians living with kindness toward others. There's a, one of my favorite examples of that was... I think it was in the 300s, the emperor, the Roman emperor, uh, Julian. We call him Julian the Apostate. He didn't walk around calling himself Julian the Apostate, but he had come from Christian emperors, and he wanted to go back to the, the Greek religion. He wanted to go back to the, the Greek gods. And so he was trying to revive the Greek religion. And uh, he was having trouble getting it stirred up. They were able to, to have some pretty good worship services, some really good worship services. They were able to, to do the, the, the pomp and the pageantry, uh, pageantry of the, the worship services. And he commends, uh, he's writing to a priest here in a letter. And he says, the Hellenic religion does not yet prosper as I desire, and it is a fault of those who profess it. For the worship of the gods is on a splendid and magnificent scale, surpassing every prayer and every hope. And so he's saying, great job with the worship services, worshiping all these gods. But he said there was a problem. And the problem was the way they lived their lives. 
And then he got angry and frustrated with the atheists. Who were the atheists? The Jews and the Christians. Why were they atheists? Because they didn't believe in the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. And so he calls them atheists, and he calls the Christians Galileans. Galileans, the followers of the Galilean. And this is what he says. He's, he's chastising his priest. Why then do we think that this is enough? That is to have some great worship services. When we do not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, the Christians and the Jews, their care for the graves of the dead and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues and it is not enough for you alone to practice them, but so must all the priests in Galatia, without exception, either shame or persuade them into righteousness, or else remove them from their priestly office. And then he goes on. In every city establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. I do not mean for our own people only, but also for others who are in need of money. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the most impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Then let us not, by allowing others to outdo us in good works, disgrace by such remissness or rather utterly abandon the reverence due to the gods. If I hear that you are carrying out these orders, I shall be filled with joy." So what's he saying there? Act like the Christians. Act like the Christians. And then maybe people will believe us. And if he could say to those we would call pagans, act like the Christians, and maybe people will believe us, how much more should we say to ourselves, Christians, act like Christians? And maybe more people will believe us. You see, the first lesson of this judgment scene, by the way, there are no lessons here. There's no instruction here. There's nothing in here that says what to do or not to do. Implicitly, yes. But the first, the first lesson, implicit lesson here, is not go and do likewise. It's rather, make sure you're in the group that's on the right. Because they're the ones who naturally normally, intuitively, show acts of kindness. So, what's the first thing we need to do? We need to get to know the one who's on the throne. That's the first thing. To know the one who is on the throne. To, to believe in him. So that we might be of his people and act like those who are of his people. Let's pray. Our God, we see this judgment scene, and judgment always makes us nervous because we have consciences that declare against us. But we call out once again, giving you thanks that you sent your son to die not for the good and the godly, but to die for the unrighteous, to make us to be declared righteous before you. I pray for all of us that we would be believing on Christ alone for our righteousness before you. And at the same time, Lord, may we show our faith 
by our works of love and our deeds of kindness so that we are naturally, normally, habitually kind towards those, especially those who are Jesus' brothers and sisters who need our help, so that we might show that we're really disciples by our love and so that in that great day we have nothing to fear because we have faith in Jesus and that faith is evident to all and evident on that last great day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.